Hello, welcome to Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and joining me is Anthony Tresca. Hello! This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are excited and thankful for you all to be joining us for our discussion of 1973's The Exorcist. gently cautioned people uh, at the end of our previous episode Anthony and I are not going to this is not going to be one of those where we're like searching for bad things to say about it and just gushing over it the whole time yes in fact we're going to be working really hard to to avoid doing the opposite because one of the most important things to us is that we don't ever want there to be an episode where it just feels like a bash session because that's not yeah we don't want to vomit all over any film like reagan vomits over all of the people in this film <laughs> at ah, first i was, thought you uh, meant the president and i was i didn't know where you were gonna go with oh. the reagan and vomit and i was like i'm not familiar and then yeah you haven't heard of ronald <laughs> reagan's <laughs> yeah. vomit scandal? yeah i was like i don't i don't he, think yeah, he vomited all over the the russian leader at the well, time like, yeah, was, yeah i mean that's honestly i was like i'm the not weirdest this power is, play of yes. all time <laughs> <laughs> well it kind of is in this film um but yes we're going to avoid the vomiting um, and, uh, you know, the, like, trauma of, of The Exorcist in our discussion. But quite frankly and quite honestly, dear listeners, we just want to brace you for the fact that we're not going to be in total praise of this film. And yeah. there's really good reasons for it, right? So normally we begin with our framework and then we go and kind of go into the, the stuff. But maybe we should kind of begin with, like, just beginning with our why in a sentence or two this film didn't do the things for us that we hoped it would do and yeah. then go into the framework there's no need to like keep people in suspense so i i mean i obviously heard about the exorcist for a while but i actually didn't watch it until extremely recently it was one of the horror films like i had seen a bunch of like the class the classics mm-hmm. in quotation marks uh but i hadn't gotten around to the exorcist i just assumed i'd get there one day it was one of those we both come from like religious backgrounds, mm-hmm. and like in the ca- I'm I'm Catholic. I was raised yeah. Catholic, so like The Exorcist is very much talked about in Catholic like Catholicism. Obviously, I mean if you've seen the film, you know why. Right. Uh, it's very much talked about and held like oh don't you don't want to watch that movie? It's the scariest thing ever. Right. Uh, and then when I watched it, I was extremely disappointed at what both was and wasn't there. Yes. So as somebody who, you know, so I remember very distinctly when I was in like high school, I bought the box set of um, the Anne Rice vampire books. Mm -hmm. And my mom was like, I'm so disappointed in you. And so I got rid of them. And now I'm like, why? Why did I do that? Um, (laughs) But but like there was just kind of always this, this understanding that, you know, this is not an ideal thing for one to be interested in, but if you're going to be interested in it, you kind of need to stay clear of the, the super, quote, dangerous ones, right? Um, like, spiritually dangerous, and so The Exorcist was on the list. It was the same thing for me. I didn't see it, even as a horror scholar. I kept pushing it off. I knew every scene. I could tell you all about it. I just couldn't make myself watch it, because it felt like a betrayal of 
everything that I was before, right? As well as like still that sort of, but what if, right? What if I watch this film and then creepy things start happening into my house? Did I bring it to myself? Mm-hmm. You know, so so I think this is one of those films and it's so ironic, but the problem is, is that the film can't live up to the hype, right? Yeah. No film can live up to the hype. I mean, year, just decades yes. of praise. And I mean, it's, as we'll talk about, I'm sure later on, just like its influence is pretty much everywhere in yes. the horror genre, or at least the modern yes. horror genre after the 70s. So it's just impossible to get away from it. And I mean, you said you knew every scene, of course, right. it's just so ingrained in the cultural zeitgeist yes. at this point. Absolutely. And so that's, you know, going to be the start of our complaints um, or criticisms of the film. And we'll come back to this because it's it's not just this like that the hype isn't good enough, right? It's that there are some fundamental flaws that we find with the form and content of the film as well. Mm-hmm, um, and so we'll get to that in a second, but I want to set up uh, our critical framework because it's going to lead me to discuss one of my one of my issues with the film. So today I want to talk about, there's a very great book called Hearths of Darkness instead of Hearts of Darkness. Very ah, punny. Very punny. The Did family, I write this book? I know. I, <laughs> like, I knew I had to buy it when I saw that there was going to be a pun as the title. Um, and it's The Family and the American Horror Film by Tony Williams. And this is a popular enough book that of scholarship that it has an updated edition. And so in a book on The Family and the American Horror Film, unsurprisingly, The Exorcist features sort of throughout, like it's sprinkled throughout, and then there's actually like several pages just kind of devoted to it. And I agree entirely with what Williams says in his analysis of The Exorcist, where I have problem is actually that I don't think that this is what makes the film the most interesting. But, you know, he talks about the fact that, and this is just kind of a quote, The Exorcist appeared at a time of fundamental changes within the family. Despite its enshrinement within American ideology, the unit bore little relationship to ideological representations, increasing divorce rates, one-parent families, developing minority relationships, and economic necessities resulting in two breadwinners questioned the role of 1950s TV model families like the Cleavers and the Rileys. And then he, he goes on and says um, that beneath the exorcist supernatural veil are family tensions. And he talks about gender identity and he talks about um, how that fits with the sort of male or masculine demonic presence. He, you know, goes through and talks about, you know, how this is a text that again, I think is very clearly so. Um, looking at whether or not some of the concerns that we have about the family can be as horrific as a daughter being possessed. And I think the film says that we should be as concerned in many ways um, with the possession of a child and the potential disillusion of a, of a family unit that sort of mirrors that traditional or I- ideal family. Yeah. And he he ends his section specifically on the the exorcist by saying, again, this is a quote, the families in the exorcist live in a deteriorating America that no longer offers any coherent solutions to individual family dilemmas. Despite the prologue's desperate attempt to externalize evil, dissonant forces are definitely within the family. The exorcist visually associates both families before Chris and Damien meet. And then the last sort of couple of sentences are... Significant dualities occur between institutionally acceptable discourses of patriarchal control and demonic counterparts. 
both seek physical control of the female body. The exorcist world reveals the family as the real threat, not the imaginary Iraq of the prologue. And so there is some like push against, like it's not just solely a conservative reading, right? That he's offering yeah, here. He's is... saying that, you know, in this family that is is not your traditional image, we are still being controlled by the, these patriarchal forces of religion and of what the quote family should look like, and that maybe that is as threatening as is the demonic, demonic possession. So Williams doesn't make this entirely a conservative reading, but I still think my, and we'll get back to it in a minute, one of my fundamental issues with this film is that I think the most interesting parts are the parts that have nothing to do with the family. Yeah. I think that's a very, that's an interesting, going to be an interesting reading of the film. I agree with most of what Williams says, I think, though. It's like an interesting way to like spin a film that has some problems when it comes to its representation of women and mm -hmm. just people in general. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's an interesting way to read it as like a commentary. I don't know if it is, as we'll get into based right. on like the people who are involved in it right. and what their clear values were, right. as well as um, we'll just get into it. Yeah. Let's just get into it. Yeah, I was Why say, don't we? Like instead of just telling us it, we'll get into it. Let's do it. So The Exorcist made in 1973 was directed by William Friedkin and was produced and written uh, for the screen by William Peter Blatty, who uh, wrote the 1971 novel of the same name, uh, The Exorcist. So uh, Blatty was born January 7th, 1928 in New York City. He was the fifth and youngest child of Lebanese immigrants. Uh, his mother, Mary, uh, which is a funny name for a devout Catholic, like she yeah, was. pretty fitting. Uh, that was his mom. She was also the niece of a bishop, so just very ingrained in this like religion growing up uh, his parents actually separated when mm -hmm. he was a toddler though which uh big no-no for catholics yes uh and he was raised in what he described as comfortable destitution which is a fun word for poverty yes. as he would describe it uh, in the late 1950s Blatty worked as a public relations director at the University of LA and then a publicity director for the University of Southern California and while he was working in uh, in California he published his first book Which Way to Mecca Jack uh, in 1960 which was a humorous look at both his early life and his work and then in 1961 he got his big break uh, while still working in public relations when he appeared as a contestant on the Groucho Marx quiz show you Ooh. bet your life and he won $10,000 which was enough money to quit his job and write full time and then after that because of how much money he won sure. he never worked a full time job in his life excellent although anyone who you talk to about yeah. writing will I was tell you writing's say, a full time yeah, job a, a non clock in 9 to 5 full time job yes. exactly exactly so after he won all that money he took a little bit of a break from writing fiction writing and then he came back and he wrote a little book called The Exorcist. Oh, interesting. I've never heard of that. Yeah. What could it possibly be about? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> it was based, his fictional novel was inspired by the 1949 exorcism performed on an anonymous young boy known as Roland Doe. Hmm. So it's another text that's based on, like, inspired by true events yes, type put, of thing. Put quote marks around that as you exactly. listen to it. Mm -hmm. uh, so Blatty was deeply religious as he was raised in a deeply religious family uh, and he spoke of how much religion impacted the writing of this book. 
devout Roman Catholic who is very much for the upholding of very traditional family values. Mm -hmm. He actually uh, campaigned pretty hardly at university settings and all of these places uh, for very, very conservative family values, which is just a thing about him, which probably shapes some of the themes in his texts. It never occurs to me to do much on the in the way and looking into the author in the background just because that's not what usually interests me the most. But one of the things I always find really interesting is this, you know, like, what are the things that haunted these writers? Not not the question of, like, what is wrong with you that you write horror? That is not the question I find interesting. I think that's a silly question. But the, like, what are the things that haunt you mm-hmm. that you have to keep working out in your, in your own stories? And, like, you can see, like, they're very clearly, um, you know, we were talking about haunting of Hill House the other day and the things that are haunting Shirley, Shirley Jackson, Jackson that are so clearly in that novel. Obviously, you can see the things that haunt Stephen King. And so it's just interesting to be reminded that, you know, Blatty isn't writing this book, presumably, because he's like, ooh, let's terrify people. It's, this terrifies me. Let's dig deeper. Because, I mean... Ideally, true horror comes from what truly does terrify yes. you, I mean. Yes, it should, because it's only going to feel authentic if it, in if some you, way, makes yeah, you afraid. If you're just like, let's write this to horrify. Right. Not because it actually does horrify you, right. it's probably not going to be very authentic. No. And it's clearly, these issues of faith, family, uh, clearly keep Blatty up at night. Yes. Did. Um, so his book uh, actually topped the New York Times bestseller list when it came out for 17 weeks, remained on that list for 57 weeks, sold more than 13 million copies in the U.S., and was translated into over a dozen languages. I'd be okay with that degree of success. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I would, too. Yeah, it'd be a hardship. I'd uh, yeah. handle it. I think I'd handle, handle it really gracefully. Me, too. Yeah. I think if, if someone just wanted to help me stumble into that success, I would... I would bear it. With yeah. a heavy heart, I would I would do it. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I mean, like, this is really impressive to have, you know, a horror book, any horror book, but certainly one that's not from, like, the established authors. Stay on, on, on the on list On the list like for that. so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about the book, no, we're not. are we? We're here to talk about the film. So, well, although this book had been extremely popular and had been a bestseller, as you just heard... Vladdy, who produced, and Friedkin, who was his director and uh, did go on to direct it, had a really difficult job actually casting this film because uh, after either they turning down people who the studio presented to them or being turned down by people who they wanted by the major stars who they were like, you'd be perfect for this movie, and they were like, no, not going to take on the Catholic Church. We're not going to deal in these issues. They didn't want to do any of that. So they ended up casting the lead roles with relatively unknown actors at the time. I mean, uh, Miller, who played Father Damien, wasn't even an actor. He was the author of a play who had never done film acting Hmm. before. And this was his big break. Wow. So all of these casting choices that these two, that the pair proposed, were vigorously opposed by the studio executives at Warner Brothers Pictures. However, because Warner Brothers wasn't able to attract any of this, any stars to replace them, they eventually just were like, you know what, whatever, fine. Can't get anyone due to how sensitive this content matter is. Well, just do it. Fine, fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then principal photography was also difficult because uh, most of the set burned down. Blair, who was the actress playing Regan, and Ellen, who played her the mother, suffered long-term injuries because of it. And ultimately, the film took twice as long to shoot as scheduled and cost more than twice its budget. And that is one of the things that, like, even if you haven't seen the film, you've probably heard the 
almost like to urban legend proportions um, about the like just how hard the the production was. You know, there's always rumors like every so often they'll be like Linda Blair died horrifically traumatized by the and you're like no she didn't right like there's just it actually reminds me very much of like the expeditions to um ancient egypt where they would come back with a mummy's curse yeah right like there's just like well of course you have this like terrible thing because you took on the devil um and so that's part of the like mythology of this film oh hold on to the mythology (gasps) of this film because the release of this film and its reception has been all similarly just like mythologized Mythologized. Mythologized. Yes, I think that's so. a word. It is today. <laughs> so its released was it was on uh, December twenty sixth, nineteen seventy three. That's a right the day after Christmas. Decided to release it. Oh yeah, that's wild. I hadn't made that connection no, until right now. I love the fact that we have so many Halloween movie, not Halloween horror movies that come out at Christmas and that come out at, at uh, Valentine's Day. I just feel it's so Me too. appropriate. But yeah, so it, it didn't, doesn't come out on Christmas because that's that's pushing it even a little. But like, yeah, the day after Christmas, still the holiday sure. season. This seems like a good Perfect time to time. do it. And so since it was a horror film that had gone really over budget and didn't have any stars in the lead, Warner Brothers had zero expectations for this film. Didn't preview it for critics, only booked its initial release in 30 screens and tw- uh on 30 screens and 24 theaters, mostly large cities, and it grossed 1.9 million in the first week, which set house records in each of these theaters. So this type of release is not common for big studio films. It's very common for like exploitation films of this mm-hmm. period to roll out in smaller, uh, smaller theaters, see what hits, and then yes. roll out from there. But this is not how a major no. studio does it. No. Um, so the huge crowds have forced the studio to expand it into wide release extremely quickly something which they talk about how they weren't quite prepared to do. Mm-hmm. It was the highest grossing film of that year and Warner Brothers' highest grossing film of all time. After several reissues, the film grossed $232.6 million in the U.S. and Canada, which, adjusted for inflation, makes it the 15th highest grossing film of all time and the top grossing R-rated film of all time. Adjusted to 2019 numbers, The Exorcist has grossed $1.9 billion. Which is a lot of money. Yes, it is. Especially, again, considering... How little faith they yes, had in it. Yes, so, so, they also had little faith in it because when it did premiere to critics, it was very mixed reactions. Some thought it was like, okay, and some people thought it was the best thing they'd ever seen. However, despite the mixed reactions and the controversy that surrounded the film due to its content matter, people really came out to see it. In New York, where it had its initial run, patrons were enduring cold weather as severe as six degrees, sometimes with rain, sleet, and waited in hours in long lines. The crowds outside the theater sometimes rioted, and police were called to quell disturbances in New York and Kansas City. Wow. There were reports of strong audience reactions while watching the film, many accounts of nausea, fainting. A woman in New York was said to have miscarried during a showing of The Exorcist. A reviewer at the time noted that there was so much vomit in the bathroom at the showing he attended that it was impossible to reach the sinks, and some theaters even arranged for ambulances to be on call to help patrons leave the theater due to how traumatized they were by the film. And again, even if some of these things are true, you know, I'm sure they were not waiting in, like, that much vomit. I just can't imagine. But maybe they were. I don't know. But... Again, we go back to this is the mythology that has been produced around the film. And as as two people 
who were most decidedly not alive in the 70s. Correct. Um, and who, you know, weren't even doing things in the 80s that mattered, right? Like, um, it. this is the world that we've grown up in, right? Mm-hmm. We've grown up in a post-exorcist world and the mythology of the film, exactly. right? Not just the film itself. So film historian William Paul actually hits on something very similar, saying that the audience reaction had become a spectacle equal to the film, and he actually makes the claim that he doesn't think any other film's audience has received as much coverage as The Exorcist's Interesting. did, which allowed it to like build up this. I remember when Blair Witch Project came out that there was a mm. sort of similar, and they did that on purpose, right? Because they had this whole like this is really real. Um, and I remember hearing that like they had to hand out, um, you know, like airplane sickness bags, vomit bags, mm-hmm. and and so like, but again, I don't, I still don't think it matches the release of things like this. I think Psycho was able to also have a similar sort of creation because Hitchcock was able to buy every copy of the book that he could find beforehand so that no one could read it and no one could be surprised um, or everyone had to be surprised by the initial death, um, you know, there at the beginning. And so I think that this is one of the things that's unfortunate about the day and age in which we live in, that it's harder to build that sort of myth a- about a release of something because you can't control the elements as well yeah. um, in a way that you just can, right? We can say this is only going to show in 30 cities and there's no way you're really going to be able to see it otherwise, right? Like that's not an option in our in our world today. So I don't know if, if he's correct that no other film audience has been written about or received as much, you know, sort of attention, but it is certainly, the audience response is as much a part of the film as is the film itself. Yeah. And the most important thing about The Exorcist, in my opinion, probably is the legitimization that it brought horror. Uh, A horror magazine wrote a retrospective on this film and said The Exorcist has done for horror films what 2001 did for science fiction. It legitimized it in the eyes of thousands who had previously considered horror movies nothing more than a giggle. Paved the way for big studios gambling on horror, and was one of the first horror franchises from a major uh, studio that had sequels and paved the way for franchising. Uh, Excluding, obviously, the films from the 30s, like the monster films, because that was a separate entity in itself. Yes. Uh, The film was the first horror film nominated for Academy Awards, it was nominated for 10, including picture, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, director, cinematography, film editing, production design, and actually won two Academy Awards for adapted screenplay and sound mixing. And in 2010, the Library of Congress preserved it. Yay. So, again, you know, I think it depends on whether or not you're willing to count Psycho as, as a horror film, as some people are. I, I've always been kind of on the fence of doing it. Um, but But you're right that... I don't think films like Get Out um, or Parasite would have had the same chance um, if we hadn't it, to win the awards that they did. If we hadn't had The Exorcist to to pave the way um, and to show us that you know horror can be quote highbrow. And what is the like current um, like scores on the film, like the meta score and all that stuff. Because obviously, you know, at the, you talked about the critics' reaction at the time. So okay, the on Rotten Tomatoes we got the tomato score of eighty four percent, certified fresh by critics, eighty seven percent from audiences. Uh, the Metacritic score is an eighty one 
from critics and an 8.8 from audiences. And again, considering that so many horror films are like in the 60s, right? I mean, this or is... Or lower, much or lo- lower. Yes, but like the some of the best films are in like the 60s, right? This is an incredible score. This is an incredible score, period, right, for yeah. a film. Um, but that's interesting that, you know, again, the the audience responses stay the same. And if you talk to like any horror scholars or filmmakers or, or writers, they will inevitably, um, especially if they are of a generation that would have experienced that firsthand or, or experienced the, the climate of that firsthand, they will cite it as one of the most inspirational and informative works that has helped shape their career. Yeah. So shouldn't we then just agree with a vast number of people that this film is better than than you and I think it is? I mean, you know that I've never been one for just, like, liking a film just because... It has it. I'm t- like it has all of this like history with it. I didn't love Halloween. Halloween know, is a, which another film me. that is apparently I you have to love if you like horror because it's so inspirational, influential, all of these things. But I I think that this I can acknowledge that The Exorcist is tr- has truly done so much work, good work for the horror genre in terms of legitimization and just like helping these other filmmakers, like, being like, oh, that that does also scare me, too. Scary, this is something I can do. Let's make something else. And you can, it's clear that a lot of other works have been shaped by The Exorcist. However, that does not mean that I have to think that this film is that great. So, there, there are two things that I find myself thinking when it comes to The Exorcist in terms of my criticism of or or lack of appreciation for and one of them is is that there is some preferential taste right and i and i it is a hundred percent the fault of everyone who told me that this was going to be the scariest film they've ever seen i think so that you know like that i just i expected it and it was built up and it is my fault it is their fault it is society's fault for for creating blame society yeah absolutely well you know why not um for creating something that just no film can live up to so there's some of that i think too you know i can admire, and I'm going to go with two theater works because they're the ones I always think of. I can admire Oedipus Rex and I can admire Death of a Salesman and I can admire that both of them do important things and that they should continue to be anthologized, but I hate them. I hate them so much. I hate everything about them and if I never have to read them again, um, I've even been an Oedipus, right? I was Oedipus and Oedipus. So like, it's not like I don't understand them. I just hate them. I just can't, they like bodily make me just Yeah, that's me with like classic musical theater as well like yeah Roger and Hammerstein I understand they're important but I don't like them I don't yes. enjoy listening to their music or watching yes. the, their musicals and so some of it is is that you know this is just not my the exorcist is just not my cup of tea yeah in the same way that that you know not all H.P. Lovecraft is my cup of tea and Stephen King is and there are lots of people that will tell me that I'm very wrong for that right so some of it is just a preference thing and that that is, I think, 100% okay, but that's not that's not worthy of a discussion, right? No. Like, at some point, it's like, that's fine. That's, that's just you us and being yours. like, we have an opinion. Yeah, right? So what it really is, if we, if we deconstruct it, is um, that I have some fundamental problems with things that are happening in terms of the narrative and things that are happening in terms of disconnect that I feel exists between the form and content 
of this particular film. I think that's true, and I think that the a, a lot of the problems come from the directly from how kind of like I, I it feels almost blasphemous to use the word muddled for this film, but I think that the film's ideas are a little muddled. And I could tell that it was going to be a little when we started watching it because the opening thing of our film was not the first scene in the Middle East. It was actually a commentary from, was it Blatty? I can't remember. Uh, from either Blatty or Friedman where they talked about the religious implications and how they, they actually talked about how this was either going to be the scariest film you've ever seen or you're not go- or you're not going to get it and it's all based upon if this is something that scares you. Right. If this is something that will keep you up at night, you're going to be more inclined or less inclined to do it. And I was like that's a really interesting way to start out this re-release of the film by being yes. like we acknowledge that some people won't like it, but that's just because this you were never going to like it. And and what I find interesting about that claim is that I should have by all accounts. In, yeah, in theory, this then should have been perfect for us. Yes, because, you know, you come with a lot of, I mean, there's a reason they have Catholic guilt as a phrase, right? Okay. Um, I always tell people I would made an excellent Puritan because I just would have been like, oh, yes, you're right. I should feel guilty about that, right? Like, that's just, and so this film, I think, really should have resonated with us. But I think one of my issues is, is that going back to William's analysis of this, of this film, I think what is most interesting about this film is actually what gets sort of the least attention. And that is that I I don't think at the end of the day, and again, this means I'm a product of of my time. I don't think that the family angle is that interesting. And I don't think that the possession of a little girl is that interesting. Maybe it's because of the fact that we never know, like, how did she get possessed? How did she get contact with this demon? Right. The film doesn't answer any of this. It's like vague answers. Like, believe they try to tie it to that scene from the Middle yes, East. Yes, but there's no like there's no real connection between that scene and and this little girl that that is any way relatable, right? It's not like, oh, you know what? If I do appropriate another person's culture, I'm in danger, right? It was just like, oh, she's possessed now. And and to it's, me, it's a weird also just like a weird choice. Like I know that uh, Williams mentioned it like using that to externalize the yes. horror, but also it does kind of just demonize the Middle East yes. and being like Middle East monstrous, it'll it'll affect your perfect American families and yes. girls. And and the fact that we realize that perhaps, you know, there's other things in the home that, that are more frightening or disturbing than this demonic presence. Right? If you're reading it that way, I think you can say, well, at the very least, even though the Middle East is still sort of literally demonized at least it's saying that we're no better right or that we create an environment that allows it to prosper right because the demon wasn't terrorizing somebody in that middle east scene right it's only when it's in the like gross environment that is the american family that it can happen it seeps in but to me what i find much more just fundamentally disturbing in part because i'm not anticipating you know a family member being possessed um and if it was i'd just kind of leave i think um, is is this idea of like the loss of faith, right? And it is this idea of like, what does it take to to realize that your beliefs, when confronted with the fact of your belief, is still not enough? And yes, the film does try to do that, and it and it brings in you know Father Damien's mother and all this stuff. But because that takes the backseat to everything else, right? Instead of showing us 
a scene where a little girl is masturbating with the crucifix. Ugh. If we instead shown a scene where we saw the struggles from Father Damien a little bit more explicitly, and it's some of the stuff that gets cut out, right? It's some of the stuff that's in the director's cut that right. gets cut out into the theatrical version. But that's the part that I think is, is more horrifying. And I think that because there are two ver like I think we have to acknowledge yes. there are two versions of this film theatrical cut and the director's cut yes. the director's cut does do a l it has a little bit more of that it had it actually the director's cut is where the famous spider mm -hmm. like walk is in it's yes. actually not in the original no. theatrical cut which we watched yes and then we watched all of the yes. scenes from the director's cut to just to see what we had missed yes um we were I was shocked I was like what this yeah. iconic shot is not even in the yeah <laughs> it's it's interesting that again and it goes back to this like weird mythos that is created right and i'm gonna make a really hmm, mm -hmm. i'm gonna make a, a claim that is going to i think if i haven't alienated everyone who's listening yet sure right, sure sure then i'm pretty sure i'm just gonna like officially cross off the list everyone who listens to us okay all right i think that you can tell that there is going to be a fundamental issue with a film if there has to be, if there exists multiple versions, like the theatrical, the directors, the extended cut, that say films like Blade Runner hmm. also have. Because I think then what happens is, is we realize that like the text is gonna be inherently- Muddled? Muddled, yes. I was gonna use the word palimpsest because you know, again, it's, it's a text that is like, enriched because there are multiple versions right it's a text where we have the original and then it's, there's been room made and the analysis or thoughts of it um for these other versions and blade runner does something like this uh the exorcist does something like this where you know you have to see it as a as a multifaceted document right or as like multiple versions of itself mm -hmm. but to me the result 99 percent of the time is muddied because there are certain scenes that just truly don't make sense in the theatrical cut. Yes. Like, all, most of the scenes with his mother are not given any real context. Yes. And so they just feel so out of place. And you're like, why are we wasting time here? Which is not something you should ever no. feel. And I mean, they the theatrical cut is not a short film either. So, like, I don't understand why they didn't just leave, either take those out or put in the context so that they could make sense yes. in the film. But I would say that the director's version it does not perfectly rectify it, right? It does it's not, not one of those no, things no, no. where you're like, oh, okay, so we'll only watch the director's version. And and anytime you have a film where there are gonna be people that are gonna advocate for different versions, right? Like there are gonna be people that say the theatrical version is the version of The Exorcist, the director's cut, um, you know, same with Blade Runner, same with any of these films. Anytime you have that sort of discussion, um, it means that neither or none of the versions are going to be inherently fixed, right? right. They're, not gonna, they're not gonna offer everything that's needed. And maybe it's an issue of adaptation, right? Because the book, the Exorcist is quite long, right? So if the movie is two plus hours, the book would be easily, I mean, it'd be a mini series. Um, and so maybe it's an issue of adaptation. Maybe it's an issue of, of preference and style. There are films that don't feel the need to, to make all the connections and, and sort of connect all the narrative threads. But I felt like this is a film that is relying on you understanding the narrative mm -hmm. to be frightened. Yeah, I think, it's just, I think that's true. It's just not doing justice to the narrative at moments when it should. And and again, 
if you're going to create an iconic scene, right? Like everyone knows the head spinning and the, the pea soup vomit. So like, that's great that they have an iconic image and I'm not saying they should have cut that scene, but at some point, I think there could have been places where instead of giving us the shock value, they could have given us the substance I needed. I think I am about to propose a, a, a slight, a big change to the film. Excellent. I think it all may, have, it should have, it could have, a lot of the problems could have been alleviated had we not even pretended that we were supposed to have like an emotional connection to Reagan. If we had switched the focus far more from Reagan and her mother to being from all from the priest's perspective so that it was really more so like they were more of just like they you can have all the shock value you can keep every scene there because i believe he's present for everything that happens Mm -hmm. because it's all about getting kind of haunting him more Mm -hmm. than anything else Mm -hmm. yes it's the possession of her but it's really the trying to be the destruction of him So I think you just switch the perspective more so it's all from him. That way you can have the scenes with the mother. You can really more deeply explore this, like, in the face of this thing, which seems to be an affirmation of faith, but also you're still Mm -hmm. in denial because that's just the human condition. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a far more interesting and a far more effective film. And see, here's where I find myself simultaneously agreeing with you and knowing that that's that is only a solution that you and I have because we have grown up in a post-exorcist world. Because this is the text that told us, children, they are evil, right? Like yeah. This is the text that helped us to understand the concept of the demonic child, the concept of being frightened of something that should be, you know, what is it, sugar and spice and everything nice. Um, you know, like, what is what would have been frightening for the initial audience going into that would have been the fact that this is something they would have never seen before, right? You don't see films with adorable, you know, like really loving little girls, especially, that then become fundamentally disgusting, both emotionally, spiritually, as well as physically. Mm -hmm. Um, Despite the fact that, you know, like there's some nice ways that this becomes, a, I think, an intriguing metaphor for, um, you know, um, puberty and things like that. And I think those are things that, like, head full of ghosts and Paul Tremblay really kind of play with later. Later. Um, But we say this because, again, the film has done maybe too good of a job. To us, that's not interesting because we've seen so many versions of it that may have since then been more effective, but at the very least, we're not surprised by it, right? Exactly. I think going into this movie in in 1973 is going to have the same feeling as going into Psycho where you're going to be like interesting oh look at this lovely oh no right and it's just a, a, an experience that we can never have um, which what are you supposed to do with that right like what are you supposed to do with a film that is so effective in producing again this world um, that you can truly say a pre and post exorcist world mm-hmm. um, where then the text doesn't hold the same effect as a text because it's been so influential yes in defining a genre like exactly i mean it is the first film um that we've asked students to watch for a class on the home in american horror because how can you talk about the conjuring how can you talk about head full of ghosts how can you talk about any sort of remotely possession-based narrative if you have not had experience with the exorcist um it's just that the 
there are so many issues with, for me, the fact that this tries to be a narrative film, but then has all of these holes that are needed. If you want me to care for someone, and not just not just the priest, right. if you want me to care for Reagan and her mom, there are things I need in terms of character development that this film, in an effort to make it scary by not giving us this information, um, has Distance. denied us. It yes. just it it in a it distances you from the characters and it gives you that weird voyeuristic thing but not in a positive way like right. sometimes i use that phrase in a very like oh yeah it was so weird how i was just i felt like i couldn't intervene here but it was in this one it felt more like there were clear walls that were put up around these characters that just couldn't we weren't allowed into yes and that seemed like a poor choice yes and I think that the fact that the conversation almost immediately goes into gender identity um, and whether or not it's okay to be a single female mother, or yeah, well, obviously There's a tons mother. of academic yes. articles written about this film from a, either a feminist or yes. a super anti-feminist perspective. And, and this is where students kind of gravitate first, because again, I think that this is the like top layer right of investigation. But for me, that's not... It's not where I want to go, but it's also not where I feel if you're going to do the film any justice that you should go. Um, because you have to decide, and we talked about this with Halloween too, right? Is this a film that is more um, sort of affirmative and that it's reestablishing the status quo and saying, you know, if only there had been a strong father figure, mm -hmm. then it would have been okay. I um, mean, no child would have been possessed. Or is this a disaffirmative film because it's saying that, you know, look, even the patriarchal system can't do anything about this because something is so broken, we'll never refer back to it. Yeah. But, but that's not where I think most people take the conversation. I think it's just very... It's not about if it, it ultimately affirms or disaffirms the overarching society. It's usually very much like, is this film just reinforcing harmful stereotypes? Yes. Which, kind of, yeah. It's, yeah. It was 1973. Right. And and so, again, it's a, it's a product of its times, which we've, we've had issue with some films that are a product of their times, um, just as we have issues with films that are a product of now, right, for the same reason. Sure. Um, but it seems like the more... As the film has grown in terms of it being like the film everyone must see, the conversations that are interesting about the film have waned. And and I think it's because everyone just assumes that you've already been a part of those conversations, right? Because you experienced them in the 70s and 80s and 90s or, or whatever. In academia, there's like this you, there's this thing with you that always gets talked about, like you're entering a conversation yes. that has already been had. Yes. And I feel like... To a, it may not be always like when you talk about this film on the same academic level as academia, but you are entering a pre-established conversation anytime yes. you talk about The Exorcist. There has surely been someone who has talked about this before you, yes. someone who has seen it before you, and someone who has probably had very similar reactions to you before it. And so I think what happens is is that you know that that whole claim about you know you're entering into a conversation is supposed to enrich what's happening but I think that for films that have the gravitas of, of The Exorcist and it you know we could add 2001 Space Odyssey I mean there's lots of films we could add to that list um, I think that it's become a so what else is there to say let's just look at what people have said and kind of end the discussion there and so again I find myself struggling because part of my problem with the film is not the film's fault. Part of it is. Part of part of it is its fault. Part of it is it's a bit confusing. It doesn't quite know 
where exactly it wants the source yes. of horror to be, which is why no character truly gets developed in the most effective way. Right. Are we supposed to see the source of horror as the act of being possessed against one will, um, the act of having your child turn into this monster, the act of losing your faith, and the film just kind of is like, uh-huh. Yes, it is. Yes. And, and we've talked about this, right? This is like our, for me, this might be the most important question one can ask as a creator of horror, and that is, what is the source of horror for you, the audience, and you should also have it for the characters, but I think but that... But it's less important in the affect that it produces. Yes, and I think what happened was, is that they said, you know, here's the source of horror for all of these characters, pick the one that you feel best fits. Uh, so that's how, that's what Jordan Peele was inspired by. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, and we've talked about this. For we've us. talked about, like, <laughs> that that was the problem of us. He was like, reach in the bag, pull pick, out your... Pick your source of horror. Yes, and I'm not sure that works. And I think that leads to the problems of, is this film affirmative or disaffirmative? Yes. It is. Yes. Yes, it's both of them. And I think that leads to the problem of that sense of, of feeling distanced in this voyeuristic act, because instead of it being, oh my gosh, here's my fear... It's being shared by this character. It's, oh, yeah, I guess that's something that I'm afraid of. Let's mm -hmm. see how it plays out. Yeah. Um, and I just think that that's something that, for me, in my reading of the film, and, and other people may feel like they can identify clearly that source of horror, but for me, that's what's missing, right, is that I don't have that one clear thing that I can say, ah, this is what I'm supposed to be terrified of good because now I am and there have been times that I've watched a film and realized I have a fear I didn't know I had mm -hmm. so it doesn't have to be something that like I've been struggling with I can just be like oh I didn't know I needed to be afraid of this but now thank I you am. for that <laughs> so very much thanks film or text yeah like and and martyrs I think is a good example I didn't know I needed to be afraid of some of those issues but now I know that I need to be afraid of this concept of, of transcendence and what it means you know like yeah but that had a very clear source of, of horror that was different from what the characters were experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so I think if that, that is my biggest, and it will probably always be for everything, um, my biggest problem with the text, independent of just living in a post-exorcist world. So I think we, we, I mentioned this earlier, right? That there are films you cannot watch without having seen The Exorcist. Exactly. And I think that... It feels like you're setting something up I right am. Now. Thank you so much. This is my transitional sentence. Oh, very um, good. So... I like where it's going. Thank you. With that in mind, it seems like a perfect choice would be... 2013's The Conjuring, which we actually briefly referenced here as one of the texts that you can clear, see clear links from The Exorcist to the film itself. Yes. And this is, I think, a good way to, to continue our discussion of, of films that have begun to, to sort of create a mythology that goes beyond the text. And in this case, it's, it's much like The Exorcist in, in a literal way in that there's, you know, films within this universe. Exactly. But also just sort of the idea that, you know... Um, it's, it's very much like a spiritual successor in almost all aspects to The Exorcist yeah. itself, as we will undoubtedly get into the franchise, the legitimization, the continued legitimization of this genre, the box office success. Just, it's a very, a lot of parallels we'll yes. draw. Um, and so we hope that you will join us for 
our next episode on The Conjuring. In the meantime, be sure to like, share us with your friends, subscribe. And And if there's films or books that you would like for us to look at, please let us know because we will be more than happy to add them to our list. Get in contact with us via our social media, which is in the description of this podcast, as well as our email, which is also in the description of this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.